makes them very difficult to find uh, because they're so small. If, you, if two pages stick together, you've missed the book entirely and you've got to go back and try again. Uh, but the Minor Prophets, and it's so interesting, by and large, the Minor Prophets are very parallel. They, they have a similar pattern, except for Jonah. Jonah doesn't follow the pattern of any of the other prophets because the book of Jonah is a story. It's a narrative text, which is unusual uh, in the prophets, because normally we would expect the prophets to be prophecy. Uh, there is some prophecy in Jonah, but for the most part, it's a story. And it's a story that sadly I think we've relegated to children's church by and large uh, because there's a pretty fantastical aspect of the book of Jonah that children love to hear. And let's face it, we love to hear it too because we call the story of Jonah, Jonah and the, Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the big fish, depending on how technical you want to be about that Hebrew word. Jonah and the whale is what we call it, which I find ironic because of the 48 verses of Jonah, by my count, the whale is mentioned in three of them. Actually, the story of the book of Jonah is much bigger than the whale, and the whale is a little tiny piece of the story. So if the whole story that you ever heard about Jonah was that he disobeyed God, and because he disobeyed, he had to spend three days in the belly of a whale, I'm sorry, but you actually missed the point of the book, and the part that you got is not exactly accurate. Uh, we'll talk about why, what the whale does, okay? The whale is not the judgment. Here's a little, here's a, I'm just going to tell you now because I don't want to confuse you. The whale is not the judgment, the whale is the deliverance, okay? We'll talk about that when we get to the whale part, okay? There's four chapters in the book of Jonah, and if you've heard that story of Jonah that I just mentioned, you pretty much heard a very abbreviated part of chapter 1 and a couple of verses from chapter 2, and you completely missed out on the rest of chapter 2, which is really great, and then the rest of the story that happens in 3 and 4, which is actually where the climax of the story is, where Jonah is really taught his lesson. Whether or not he actually learns it is debated, okay? Jonah is a great book, and because it's a narrative, anytime you're dealing with a story in the Bible, it can be hard to pinpoint one theme that is the theme of that story because many things happen in the story and each part of the story there's something that we can learn. I would suggest to you though that the theme of this book, probably the most prevalent of the many themes of this book, is this. God wants to save people who will turn to him. If you want to put it in one word, okay, I actually had to do this for a class in, in undergrad. I had to know the themes of all the books of the Bible. And the one word theme for the book of Jonah was salvation. Salvation is the theme of the book of Jonah. This is a real historical story. And I understand there are some uh, really grand, fantastical aspects of this story but if you've decided that miracles aren't possible, you could probably throw out most of your Bible anyway. Yes, there are things here that don't seem to be quite possible, but the fact is we serve the God of the impossible. He, he created everything with a word. He can change it to fit his means and do whatever he wants. A lot of people trying to explain away, especially the whale part of this story. You don't need to. God can do a miracle. He does whatever he wants. It's really not surprising when you look at all of the other amazing things 
that God does from cover to cover in your Bible. So here we are, the book of Jonah, a book about salvation. Let's read together. We're going to begin right at the beginning. We're going to read through most of the first chapter here, and then we're going to discuss some of the things that God is showing us through it. Jonah 1.1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And he said unto, and he said, every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, kind of, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. There's a great word. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land. But they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Let's pray, ask God to bless his word. Father, thank you that we are able to look into the perfect law of liberty this evening. And as we read this story of Jonah, might we be encouraged uh, in your mission to reach people uh, with the good news of repentance and salvation from the wrath to come. And Father, now would we um, eschew the attitudes of Jonah who fled from the presence of the Lord. Would you do a work in our hearts? to make us follow hard after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as we, as we look into this passage, there, there are several things that are highlighted here. Again, a narrative passage and several themes coming at us all at once in these 16 verses. First of all, we see, I think the most obvious, is the disobedient servant of God. We see God calls to his prophet Jonah. Jonah was not new at this prophet thing. He had been prophesying for who knows how long. But the difference is that his prophecies had been relegated to prophesying to the people of God, to Israel. It was highly, highly, highly unusual for a prophet to be called to anyone who was not God's people. But we see this call of God. Look back at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Here's the call of God. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. One of the wonderful things about this call that we see is we learn something about the character of God that if you've just been following the main story of the Old Testament, you may have missed completely. And that is this. God proclaims salvation from sin and judgment not just to the Jewish people, but to the world. Now, the thrust of the Old Testament is focused on God's saving work in and through God's chosen people, Israel. And of course, it was always God's intention for Israel to serve the Lord, to bring glory to him, and for them to be a light to the nations. But here, God seems to step beyond that plan to send a messenger directly to the rest of the world, specifically this pagan city of Nineveh, to deliver them a message of judgment and by implication, a call to repentance. God is holy. We talked about that this morning. He's always right. There's no sin in him. Being holy means that God is completely separate from sin. He cannot abide it forever. He must judge wickedness, both in his people Israel and in the nations. But God's purpose in pronouncing this judgment before it comes has always been to offer mercy. He warns us of his judgment so that we will turn from our sin to God and know the salvation that is offered. When God pronounces judgment on sin, he also offers pardon to those who would humble themselves and seek his mercy. This proclamation of judgment was to be sent not to the people of God, but to the pagans of Nineveh. Since the time of Abraham, God's working in the world had been primarily in and through a single people. That doesn't mean that God had forgotten the rest of the world. Israel was meant to be, as we said, a shining light to the nation so that all men would fear God and know him. Seems that over time, though, the people of Israel had become callous to the needs of the rest of the world. They weren't interested in other people knowing God. They were focused inwardly. Not only that, but the witness of the people of Israel had been tarnished before the world because of their disobedience and because the world could see God's hand of judgment on them. The, the picture that was meant to be painted for the world to see God's hand in these people had been tarnished. But now Jonah's commissioned with a message to the nation, specifically Nineveh. Uh, and this message is a message of salvation. 
Nineveh uh, was part of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the Ninevites, uh, who lived in what we now think of as Iraq, um, were notably wicked people. They were especially known internationally for the violent atrocities that they would uh, perpetrate against their enemies in international conflicts. Uh, things that are so vile, grotesque, and disturbing that I've decided not to mention them in a service where the children are in the room. But let's just say it was kind of scary what these people would do to people from the outside. They were also noted idolaters. They worshipped a litany of false gods, and they performed sinful rituals in worship of these gods. And most notably to Jonah, they were not God's chosen people. They were outside of the covenant blessings of God. Nevertheless, God's call comes to Jonah. He tells him to go and pronounce judgment on these people because their wickedness has come up before me. So this command comes to Jonah. Jonah, a prophet, would be very accustomed to receiving messages directly from God. And when Jonah hears this message, undoubtedly, it's, it's loud and clear, he runs away. He runs away. Um, interesting little note for those of you who really like literature, nerds, uh, you really like literature, here you go. The verses 4 to 16, which describe Jonah's flight, are a chiasm. Remember that word from literature class? Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a mirrored parallelism. Usually you have it described like this, A, B, B, A. Except in this case, it's A, B, C, D, E, F, F, E, D, C, B, A. Okay? It's really beautiful from a literary perspective, uh, but it actually it serves a purpose as most literary devices do. Jonah's flight is meant to show us a comparison, a parallel between two contrasting things and the answer may surprise you. In just a moment, I'll show you these two contrasting things that the writer of Jonah, probably Jonah himself, uh, wants to point out for us. So Jonah's flight. God calls to Jonah, take this message of judgment to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, I'd rather not, and goes the opposite direction. Some have tried to describe Jonah's fleeing from God primarily as being motivated uh, by fear of the Ninevites. Uh, I just talked about how fearful these people are. They didn't like outsiders and the, and the types of things that they would do to those who were their enemies. But actually, as we read the story of Jonah, if you take the whole thing in context, it actually doesn't seem like that was Jonah's primary reason for running away. It wasn't because he was afraid of them. It was because he didn't like them. In fact, when you think about a person whose only desire is for others to face judgment and hardship, he hated them. It's clear to me that Jonah hated the Ninevites. They were not his people. They were his enemies by extension. They were God's enemies. The things that they did, how could God offer them an oracle? They are his enemies. 
Jonah didn't like the fact that God was going to offer not just a prophetic oracle of judgment, but by extension, an opportunity for repentance. Jonah knew how oracles worked. God often pronounced oracles of judgment upon Israel, and the purpose of it was to convince them to turn around. Jonah knew this was possible. He had read of the repentance of Israel time and time again throughout their history. And now the same opportunity for repentance was being offered to those people? Atrocious. How dare God forgive someone like that? Whenever we adopt the same attitude as Jonah, it's because we don't understand how blessed we are to have the forgiveness of God. Just how sinful and wicked and twisted we are. Are we really that different from the rest of the world? Did you earn the fact that God would forgive you, or did he do it because he is merciful? What is keeping you from taking God's message of judgment and mercy to your community? Maybe it is, okay? We can talk about, maybe it is you're afraid. You're afraid of what they'll say to you. You're afraid of what they'll do to you. They're fearful people. But maybe it's because, I don't know, I usually don't talk to people like that. They're not like me. They don't listen to the same music I do. They don't have the same lifestyle I do. They don't have the same background as, as me. They don't have the same ethnicity as me. Or maybe I've seen what they do, and they are beyond saving. You would never, ever, ever say that out loud. But there is something in the back of your mind that is keeping you from going to the world with the gospel. And heaven forbid it be the same motivation that kept Jonah from taking that message, which is that he just didn't like them very much. But the wonderful thing is that the message of salvation is given to all. To the nations, to the vilest of sinners, God offers pardon. Another thing I think as I look at the commissioning of Jonah is I recognize that as we do take the message of the gospel to the world, we have to remember that the message of the gospel is first a message of God's holiness and judgment. If the people were going to repent, they had to understand the consequences of their sin. I've said this before, but I keep seeing these presentations of the gospel that leave this out entirely. You can fill a church building really easily. In fact, I bet the Baptist Church of Hadley could be huge if we just tweaked our gospel presentation a little bit. If we were willing to leave out the sin part and leave out the judgment part and just talk about the love part, it would be huge. I have this practice of uh, every time I see a, like a huge, huge, huge church building, I like to look up that church's website. Okay? Uh, Olivia and I were just in Australia. There aren't that many true believers in Australia. There really aren't. Um, their Christian circle is a lot smaller than ours. If you've ever thought our circles were small, you should try that in Australia. But uh, we were looking up like something for Judah to do one day. He really needed to get out. We really needed to do something Judah-focused one day. So we found this um, like children's play area. You pay a few dollars, 
and you can go in, there's a cafe, and there's this huge play structure with stuff for kids of all ages. It was great. And this thing was located just outside of a church. It was owned by that church. It was a business run out of the church. Interesting idea. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about the idea, but it was really nice. Okay, it was really nice. Okay. And I was looking at the size of this church building, and I thought, this is unusual for Australia. Okay, huge. I mean, I didn't go inside. If I had to guess based on the outside size of the building, I mean, probably upwards of 1,000 people going to this church. Okay. So I did. I have this little habit, pulled out my phone, looked up this church, and their uh, statement of faith was mostly pretty good, except I noticed something was almost missing entirely, and that was any discussion of sin and judgment. I can't remember the exact words, and I wish I would have written them down before I came up here. Actually, wasn't planning to give this illustration. I can't remember the exact words, but their description of sin was something like, um, God, we and God aren't on the same page, or something like that. Uh, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something really mellow. It wasn't like, you know, our sin stinks in the nostrils of God. He hates sin. We deserve judgment. You don't, I don't know that you have to say all that. But there was not a serious discussion of the need. It was just like, God loves you, and he wants what's best for you. And there was a little blurb about health and wealth there that was kind of confusing. And they missed it entirely. I understand, this is the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament, but the fact of the matter is that repentance has always been the same, and faith has always been the same. Faith is what saved Abraham. Faith is what saved all the Old Testament saints. They understood, turn from my wickedness to God, put my faith in him. This is Jonah's primary message. He is to tell the people that their wickedness has come up before God and that he is wroth. And they're meant to draw from that. We need to turn around and beg God's forgiveness. We see this message given to Jonah. It tells us something about our message today. So we saw, first of all, probably the most obvious thing about this story, which is the disobedient servant of God. There's also uh, something else in this passage that jumps out to us, and that is this, the, the contrast of the pagans of the world. So I told you about this chiasm, okay, this, this, uh, this structure that's set up. And it's set up, there's, it serves a few purposes, but the one I want to focus on is the fact that there's a contrast between God's man and the pagan sailors on the boat. Which one do you think is painted in a good light? I said, the answer may surprise you. Remember that? We, we actually see these pagan sailors who worship a litany of false gods, who every time Jonah does something bad, they seem to do something sensible. And uh, we're, we're going to learn some interesting things from that. First of all, when the pagans are praying, God's people are sleeping. Look at verse 4. The Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners, okay, I'm going to call them sailors, were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Why was Jonah asleep? Well, uh, I would not say it's because he was resting in God. 
he and God were not on particularly good terms. The best I can figure is he was totally callous to everything. He just didn't care. He didn't care. He's decided, whatever, I'm just going to go down and take a nap. Whatever happens, happens. He's gone down, he's fast asleep, and these pagan people, they worship uh, many gods, are up there thinking of every god they can think of and begging that god to stop the storm. Obviously, these people's prayers were misplaced, but think of their devotion. In the midst of trouble, their thought was, we should pray. And in the midst of trouble, Jonah's thought was, nothing I can do, I might as well take a nap. Can we be outdevoted by the pagan world? You guys got any Muslim coworkers? You ever notice how they stop whatever it is they're doing at certain times of day? Sometimes they roll out a mat, they get down on their knees, they bow towards Mecca, and they pray. I don't know, it, there might be some people that if I asked you, when's the last time, not for a meal, not in public, you got on your knees and talked to the Lord in earnest. I wonder when the last time was. And, and these people, they're worshiping a false god, but look at their devotion. Think of uh, the Mormons, okay? It is like nearly impossible to out-nice a Mormon. They're so friendly, they're so kind, they're so considerate. I don't know how much, there's not too many Mormons up here. I've interacted with several, and they're always like super friendly. Hasn't God instructed us to show love to the world? We're being out-devoted by people worshiping a false god. The Jehovah's Witnesses, what do we know them for? They are extremely evangelistic. They are desperate for people to follow after their god. Though they call him Jehovah, the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses is not Jehovah. They're worshiping a false god, but look at their devotion. It like makes no sense that people who are following after a lie would be more dedicated to that lie than the people of the true God are dedicated to him. We see a contrast is being drawn by the writer of this book. He's trying to contrast Jonah and these sailors. When the pagans are praying, God's people are sleeping. When the pagans are seeking, God's people are fleeing. Uh, as we read on in, in uh, this passage, and, and we won't reread all of it, but basically the, the sailors, they want to know whose fault is this? Okay, clearly we are facing judgment from a God. So what do they do to determine whose fault? By the way, they go and wake up Jonah and they, the, the, the sailor who wakes him up says, why are you sleeping? You should be praying. Okay, uh, which is a pretty harsh indictment for a prophet. Okay, <laughs> they don't know he's a prophet, but why are you sleeping? Get up and pray. <laughs> okay, so they go, they wake him up to pray. And uh, then they, they've decided this must be judgment. This must be judgment. So they cast lots. And there are several ways to cast lots. I'm not sure exactly how they did it. It may have been that they had marked pieces in a container. And wh whoever's piece you draw out was the winner. Okay. So when they cast lots, they drew out Jonah's piece. And they said, this is it. It has been revealed to us whose fault this is. They desperately wanted to hear from the divine. 
This is why they cast lots. It was like a supernatural thing to them. They believed that the gods controlled chance. And so to hear from the gods, they cast these lots. They wanted to hear a message from God. They wanted the divine, okay, whatever gods they were thinking of, to show them the truth. And here is the messenger of God's truth who is trying so desperately to keep it from them. The world is seeking and God's people are fleeing. I know it's really, really popular to stand up in the pulpit and preach against the most bizarre ills of the day, okay? The bajillion genders you can choose from now and everybody is loving everybody everywhere and all that, okay? I understand. And those things are sin and it does show the wickedness of the world, certainly. But what I think it also shows is that people are desperately seeking for satisfaction. They, they're so confused. They know they're empty, but they don't know why. And maybe if I just called myself another gender, maybe if I reinvent myself in this way or that, maybe if I try that new sensation, maybe if I have the latest thing, maybe I will find the satisfaction I'm looking for. The world is desperately seeking for God. We need to be careful that when we see people doing these crazy, abominable things, we don't just write them off. We have to remember that they are seeking after God, and God is seeking after them. These sailors wanted to hear a message from the divine by casting these lots, and the, the messenger was right there, hiding it desperately. It's interesting that Jonah does eventually tell them about God, but only after he gets caught, okay? They, he's like not telling anybody who he is or why he's there. Even when they're all probably about to die, he still doesn't want to tell them. And then they cast this lot. They pull up, oh, it's that guy. And then the interrogation begins. And there's like four or five questions that they ask him right in a row. They don't even give him a chance to answer. They ask him all these questions right in a row. And being pressed... Jonah tells them why he's there. Look at verse 9. And he said unto them, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah, in a pinch, because he has to, decides to preach to these men, okay? He tells them, well, I'm a Hebrew, and we know for sure that our God is the one true God. We are absolutely certain of it, and I decided to run away from him. And the response of the sailors is, why? <laughs> why would you do that? We aren't sure which of our gods could be real. We cover all the bases because somebody rumored that this thing might be a god. We worship everything. We pray to everything. You're saying your people hear from God directly. You've witnessed miracles. You've achieved this kind of unnatural success in international warfare and conquering the land of Canaan. You've seen God work from age to age. You know exactly who he is, and you decided to disobey him and get on our boat. They're flabbergasted. You know what? When we choose not to follow the Lord, when we choose to disobey him, the world notices. And it's very confusing to them. And I think probably especially, and I think Jesus spoke to this effect, 
The especially confusing thing to the world when they look in on Christianity, the people who profess to know the one true God and have him dwelling inside us, is when we fight. Jesus in his high priestly prayer was desperate for us to be one as he and the Father are one. And I think that he knew that if we're not one, the, the waiting, looking world would see something doesn't make sense here. If they really are who they say they are, if they really know God the way they say they do, why are they living like they do? It just doesn't quite make sense. You see the sailors call out, why would you do that? And the world opposed to God looks at us. They see our disobedience. They see our disunity. They see the things we say, the way we act, the fact that we hide the message of God. And they say, why? It doesn't make any sense. It reminds me of... Um, there is a, uh, a famous magician whose name is, um, I think it's Pendulet. Pendulet. Have you heard this name? Or is that a, a razor? Okay. A Pendulet. Uh, I remember seeing an interview with him. He's, he's a well-known atheist. He really dislikes Christianity. And he said, one of the reasons I don't believe in Christianity and one of the things that confuses me the most about it is if you really think that I'm going to hell, why are you not telling me and reminding me and screaming at me every day to follow Christ? He's like, if you were about to get hit by a bus, I would do everything I could to get your attention and get you out of the way of that bus. I might even consider risking my life to get you out of the way of that bus. What you're saying is that I'm destined for something far worse than getting hit by a bus, and you just are okay with not talking about it ever again. Well, he said no one time, and I really don't want to bother him, so I'm just going to leave it alone. Jonah, concealing this message of God, when he finally reveals it, and he reveals the way that he's been treating God and his command to go to the world with the message, this sailor says, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't. It doesn't. When the pagans are praying, God's people are sleeping. When the pagans are seeking, God's people are fleeing. When the pagans are bowing, God's people are sinking. So here's what happens in the story. Jonah has a solution. It's an interesting solution. He says, no reason for us all to die. Just throw me over the side of the boat and I'll die and you guys will all live which sounds noble. But if you think about why Jonah was in this situation in the first place, it wouldn't be my first recourse. Okay, notice all of the sailors praying, desperately praying, calling out. They're probably apologizing for, to their false gods for every wrong they can think of that they've ever done and every offense they've ever committed. And we never see Jonah pray once. He just says, you know what? I deserve this. You might as well just throw me in and I'll die and you guys will be fine. He doesn't ever once stop to say, God, I'm sorry, I've been running from you. I want to serve you. Please spare me and I will follow after you. I've seen how great you are. Nope. He says, just let me die. You guys carry on. It's almost like Jonah would rather die than take the gospel to the people he doesn't like. Uh, I, I've seen... People try to frame this up like it's super noble. And it is kind of noble to say there's no reason for you guys all to die for my wrongdoing. Okay, that's fair. But I don't see quite as many people pointing out the fact that this is probably not the best option to say, well, I should just die. And the rest of you can live. And that way I don't have to do what God asked me to do anyway. 
I mean, if you see the pattern of God and his willingness to accept repentant sinners, you'd have to say that if Jonah bowed right there in the ship and said, God, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I've been running from you, I should trust in you, you know best, that that would have been a really great way out and they all could have been fine. I mean, that's conjecture, but it really seems sensible to me. Jonah says, I'd rather die. I'd rather die. So, the sailors, uh, again, better than Jonah, they're like, that's a bad idea. Nobody needs to die. They all decide, we're going to row to shore. They put everything into it that they can. They cannot escape the storm. It won't let up. And so they're like, we don't like it. They don't have murder in their hearts. So they pray to God. They pray to God. And they say, uh, let's read it. Uh, they say, uh, verse uh, 14, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. What they're saying is, okay, um, we're going to do it. We're going to throw this guy into the water, and he's going to die. God, please don't judge us for murdering him. Okay, So they, they do. They, they take him up. Jonah thinks he's in the right by not killing himself. These other guys killed me. And they throw him into the water. And uh, actually, if you read the next couple of verses, it kind of seems like he drowned. Um, some people think he did. Actually, we'll talk about that next week. But they throw him into the water, and immediately, verse 15, the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Did the sailors get saved? Honestly, I don't know, and we could argue about that all day. Were they just adding God onto their list of gods? Were they truly repenting and following after the one true God? We don't have enough information, I think, to make that judgment. We are challenged that these men are so humbled before God. They recognize that this God is great. And when these pagans are bowing, God's people are sinking. From what I can see at this point, Jonah has still not submitted himself to the will of God. Even as he sinks down into the ocean, he will not obey. But in contrast, these sailors bow themselves and humble themselves before the Lord. Uh, it's assumed that these vows that they offer is a vow that this won't be our only sacrifice to God. When we get back to shore, we're going to do it again because this God is an amazing God. There's this contrast drawn, a surprising contrast between God's man and these pagans. And I think really what we draw from this is that what God really desires is that we humble ourselves before him. And it's not about where you came from or the religious rites you've been through or your position or whatever. You're a deacon, you're a deaconess, you're a pastor, you're whatever. It has nothing to do with that. It has, it has to do with humbling ourselves and looking to the Lord and following after him. So as we, as we look at this passage, we see uh, the disobedient man of God. We see the contrast of the pagan men. And then finally, we see something 
that maybe wasn't seen at first when this book was first published, and that is, it, that is this. We see the foreshadowing pictures of the coming Christ. We'll just look at this very briefly. Jesus is in this story. Uh, actually, Jesus is all through the story of Jonah, and we see him time and time again. And in Jesus' ministry, he actually makes several references to the book of Jonah, trying to point out, okay, the story of Jonah, it's a true story, but it was written the way that it was written to foreshadow the things that I will do. Remember Jesus saying, uh, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so uh, will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth, or something along those lines. And the disciples were like, what? <laughs> they, don't, they don't understand at that time what he's talking about. Um, but uh, we see Jesus and principles about Jesus throughout this prophecy. Actually, all of the minor prophets, which mostly date very close to the end of the Old Testament canon, are replete with mentions, both, um, let's say, blatant and subtle, to the coming Christ. And uh, some of this was recognized by the Jewish people before Jesus' coming. Some of it Jesus had to point out and say, look, here I am in the Old Testament. And we're like, oh, yeah, there he is. Okay, so where do we see Jesus in this story. Well, first of all, the message of God that is given to Jonah matches up so closely with the message of Jesus. And the same thing happens when the message of salvation comes with Jesus, as did with Jonah. Jesus comes. He doesn't inaugurate a new empire on earth. He doesn't establish his kingdom on earth right away in the way that the people expected him to. Instead, he opened up the gates of salvation for all mankind. And you know who didn't like that very much? The Jewish people didn't like that very much. That's why they hated him. For the same reason Jonah was super mad about this, okay? Why would you open this up to all those people? They're terrible. The Jews are the best. You, we are the only ones you should save, okay? But we see a parallel between this message given to Jonah, a message for all people, and the message that Jesus brought, a message for all people. We also see a parallel in the fact that Jonah endured punishment that others may be saved. Remember Jonah being cast over the side of the ship so that the sailors could be saved? Here's the difference. Jonah was guilty, and in this aspect, the sailors were innocent. It was the guilty dying to save the innocent. In Christ, we have the innocent dying for the guilty. As the Bible says, the just for the unjust. We see Christ, and actually, as we read the story of Jonah, we're going to see Jonah is um, he's not a really great guy. He's rarely nice. He's often unfaithful. He's not cast in a very good light. But in every way that Jonah fails, Christ succeeds. I think the point of the whole Old Testament is that by the time you get to the end of the last book, you should be desperate for something to change. A lot of the prophets... Really kind of crummy. Um, the judges, terrible. Terrible. You know, uh, name your favorite Bible character. Unless it's Joseph, they're probably portrayed as being kind of awful in some ways, okay? And Joseph, I don't know, I'm sure he had a lot of problems. The Bible just doesn't talk about Joseph's problems very much. They're all bad, okay? And if you always thought Jonah was awesome, 
Um, he, it is awesome that he got to take God's message to people. That is awesome. And I'm thankful for the good things that Jonah does, but he is very disappointing in a lot of ways. He's not a very good hero. But do you know who's not disappointing in any way? Jesus. This should point us to Christ. It should make us desperate for more of him. It should make us so thankful for what we have in him. Uh, and I hope you'll buckle up because the next few weeks as we talk about Jonah, we're going to see the contrast between Jonah and Christ drawn several times. It's going to point us back to our Savior. Let's thank God for our time in his word, and then we'll sing a closing song. Father, thank you for the story of Jonah. Thank you that uh, Jonah is not the one that we put our faith in, that we put our faith in a better prophet, a, a perfect priest, a great king, that we have Christ to look to. Father, would we not act as Jonah did in fleeing from the call of God? Would we take the message of salvation to the nations? Would we obey in every way? Would we act in a way that makes sense with what we say we believe? So that the looking world would know that there really is a difference. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.